Well, to begin this morning, we have a picture of a duck. And I have a question. How do you know this duck is a duck? I mean, how do you know it's not a hamster? Or how do you know that it's not a snail? Or, or how do we know that this duck is not a monkey? What makes a duck a duck? What characteristics are the marks of a duck? For those of you who are newer to our church, uh, my name is Paul and I serve as one of the pastors here. For the past several weeks, we've been working our way through the New Testament letter of 1 John. And one of the questions John is addressing throughout this letter is, how do you know what a Christian is? How do you know if you are a Christian? How do you know if others are Christians? What characteristics are the marks of someone who is united with Christ? So the characteristics of a duck go something like this. A duck has wings, and a duck will flap those wings, and it will fly. A duck has webbed feet that aren't necessarily great for walking. It, it sort of waddles, but they are really great for swimming and propelling in the water. If we listen to a duck, we will hear it make a distinct sound. We call it a quack. These characteristics make a duck a duck. But there's some truth that there could be ways for me to pose as a duck. I could make a quacking sound. Do you want me to do it? (laughs) My kids certainly do not, so I will refrain. I, I, I could also, I could make up some wings. I could make up some wings, maybe even get a single engine motor, and I could, I could try to fly. I, I could try to swim like a duck, get some webbed feet, and, and propel myself in the water. Would posing as a duck make me a duck? No, because I didn't descend from a duck. My mother and father did not live on the water. They did not fly in the air, and they certainly did not make a quacking sound when I was born. A duck bears the marks of a duck because it was born of a duck. Being a duck is not something one earns their way into. Being a duck is something one is born into. And as a result of that birth, a duck will demonstrate characteristics of the ducks it descended from. Being a Christian, it is not something one earns their way into. Scripture teaches being a Christian is something you're born into. In 1 John chapter 4, the Apostle John identifies how a Christian has been born of God. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Because of this new birth, a Christian manifests new characteristics. Like a duck manifests characteristics of the one it descended from, so a Christian demonstrates characteristics of the one who gave it a new birth. 
Let us love one another, for love is from God. A a Christian resembles and images the God who gave he or she a new birth. And more than simply giving birth to a Christian, in the new birth, God gives Christians his very self, his spirit. He is not a distant parent who abandons or neglects. Verse 13, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. A Christian has been given the spirit of God because a Christian has been born of God, because a Christian has been given God's spirit, a Christian will live in a new way. They will demonstrate particular characteristics or marks. What are those characteristics? Well, before we answer that question, it may be helpful to ask, why is that even an important issue? Why is it helpful to identify the marks of a Christian? Well, on the one hand, John is helping readers identify those who pose as Christians from those who are authentic Christians. Those who pose as Christians, they may very much resemble Christians in some of the doctrines they uphold or some of the ways they teach others to live. John wants Christians to recognize these individuals so they will not be swayed from following Christ. Just like the duck. If, it, if there was a less mature duck that followed me posing as a duck, it may never grow into what it was intended to grow into. It may never experience the fullness of what it means to be a duck. A Christian who follows someone posing as a Christian may never experience the fullness of what it means to be Christian. John wants his hearers to experience the fullness of what it means to be Christian. He wants them to have confidence and joy. This is actually one of the primary purposes of his letter. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, we read, And we are writing these things. And these th- things referring to truths about Jesus Christ and who we are in him. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John knows there are Christians who struggle with doubts and insecurity. He he knows there are Christians who may wonder, am I a Christian? Imagine a duck one more time. This duck doesn't fly as well as the other ducks. It doesn't quack in quite the same manner. Such a duck, if it were to think of such things, it may wonder. It may question. It may be insecure. And to help this duck, we reinforce there are basic marks that you possess that make you a duck. You may not fly as well as the others. You may not swim as well. But that doesn't mean you're not a duck. You bear the marks of being born of a duck. Christian, when you look at other Christians, you may not live out the marks as well as everyone else. But you bear the marks and you bear the marks of being born of God. So what are the marks of the new birth? From the passage Josh read earlier, we will draw out three of the characteristics. The profession of a Christian, 
the freedom of a Christian and the actions of a Christian. If you have your Bibles with you, this is the time to open it up. If you have an app, if you like to follow along there, it's good to follow along in whatever you normally engage Scripture with. So the first sign of the new birth, the profession of a Christian. Verse 15 and 16 says this, And we have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Absent of the new birth, it is not unnatural or uncommon for an individual to uphold Christ. But rather than uphold Christ as the Son of God or the Savior of the world, an individual may uphold Christ solely as a good teacher or a good example. Christ is therefore not all that much different than you and I. He simply lived and taught about the life that you and I should all strive to live. Let me share quotes from a leading philosopher or teacher who teaches a lot about moralism in our culture that captures such a view. Christ is he who transcends death by voluntarily accepting death. Christ is he who rejects the kingdoms of the world for the kingdom of God. Christ is he whose radical acceptance of the conditions of life defeats the hatred, bitterness, and vengefulness that the tragedy and malevolence that taints being otherwise produces. Without the acceptance of death, bitterness, or rules, hell triumphs. This teacher upholds Christ as a great example for how we are to live. But because this teacher denies Christ was the Son of God, we all can actually become Christ. If we live the way he lived, we can become Christ. There is nothing about his essence that is different than you and I. He simply lived better than you and I. A Christian professes there was something supernatural about Christ. He did not live like a mere human. He did not sin because he lived better than you and I. He did not sin because he was God's one and only son. He was God. A Christian does not reduce Christ to only a good example that we should all strive to attain. Rather, a Christian worships Christ as God. A Christian gives thanks to Christ, not because he provided a good example, but because of what he did as God's son. And a Christian professes he is the savior of the world. There was something he did that saved others. Because people sin, because people reject God and his ways, they deserve punishment. Because people are in such a dire state, they cannot earn God's favor. They need God to intervene. They need to be rescued and delivered. Many today, even in the church, deny such saving action is necessary. They deny the existence of a God who is angry with sinners 
and whose anger remains on those who will not receive his son. What they do is they will uphold God as tolerant or God as loving, but they deny he is angry with sin. Those who uphold such a belief, they do not need to be saved. They do not need Jesus to die for their sins. A Christian testifies it is not because of Christ's tolerance they are saved, but rather because of Christ's sacrifice and saving work on the cross. This expression, Savior of the world, it doesn't reduce Christ to being someone who tolerates sin. It upholds Christ as someone who shattered the reality that sinners live in. Far off, desperate, distant. John uses this expression, Savior of the world, in only one other place in his writings. The fourth chapter of his gospel. Jesus is passing through a place called Samaria at the time. And as he was sitting beside a well to get a little water, a Samaritan woman came to the well. Through this encounter, her sin is exposed. And many Samaritans come to believe in Christ because of the woman's testimony. So Jesus stays with the Samaritans a couple days, and many more of them believed. Verse 42 of John's Gospel, uh, chapter 4, says this, They, the Samaritans, said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus was a Jew. Samaritans were not. Chapter 4 of John's Gospel tells us Jews did not associate with Samaritans. They were viewed with suspicion and contempt. While they did possess some common ancestry and cultural roots, they also descended from non-Jewish people. As such, they were rejected. They were excluded from some of the benefits in the temple. There was hostility and enmity between Jews and Samaritans. But in this encounter, Jesus shattered such hostility. He wasn't reduced to simply a savior of the Jews. He was seen in full and recognized as savior of the world. The new birth, the pouring out of God's spirit, it gives one joy knowing all that Jesus accomplished. He didn't simply come to save people from a particular culture or a people who descended from common ancestry. He didn't save people who share the same color of skin. He didn't save only people who were rich or middle class or poor. Jesus, he is savior of the world. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. There is a love God has for sinners. He selflessly surrendered his only son. The unity of God the Father and God the Son experienced separation rather than keep that unity safe and secure. Rather than keep sinners living in a state of desperation, God sacrificed his son 
to bring those people near. God sent his only son into the world to be the savior of the world. If you testify that Jesus is the son of God, if you testify that you need a savior because of your sin, if you testify that Jesus is that savior, no, this is not something normal. It is something new. Belief that Jesus is God's son, a belief that Jesus is the savior of sinners like you and I, possessing such a belief, it is the mark of the new birth. It is a mark that God's spirit lives in you. Such a mark provides joy and assurance. It is evidence that we are Christians. Now let's move on to the second sign of the new birth. The freedom of a Christian. Verses 16 through 18 of chapter 4. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are. Are we in this world? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Absent of the new birth, an individual has much to fear about God's punishment on Judgment Day. Now certainly, many in our culture would deny such a premise. They would deny there is a holy God who created the universe and everything in it. They would deny the idea there is a moral standard of how we are to live and that we are judged by. They would deny the idea that right and wrong or good and evil exist. For them, the concept of a judgment day would be foreign, even offensive. So God's punishment, that may not be feared, but death is. Death means the end of all that I am. And so we dedicate resource after resource to clinging to life to avoid death. God's punishment may not be feared, but death is. Because of the new birth, a Christian does not fear death, nor do they fear Judgment Day. I remember listening to a a Christian speaker one day, and at the time, I would not have described myself as as a Christian. I was learning about the Christian faith. And the speaker was talking about the principle of not fearing God's punishment on Judgment Day. I was aware that I was a sinner. I was aware that moral truth did exist. And rather than live consistently with that moral truth, I often rejected it. I would lie to parents or teachers or those who were in authority over me. I lusted, often treating women as mere objects. Rather than live selflessly, I knew I was living in selfish ways. I used people to get praise or affirmation rather than live for the benefit of others. I knew these actions were sinful, and I knew there were consequences to those actions. They mattered. I deserved to be punished for them. Well, at this point in my life, I had heard that Christ died for those sins. I had heard that because of Christ, I didn't need to be punished. 
he received the wrath of God for me. This is the message of the gospel. But to be honest, there was still a a level of insecurity or fear I was experiencing. Part of me very much believed that my salvation or my standing with God, it was rooted in my performance. I could be forgiven one day, but maybe someday when I sinned again, maybe it would disqualify me from God's forgiveness. Or maybe if I didn't read my Bible enough, or I didn't pray enough, or I didn't go to church enough, I would be disqualified. I would no longer be saved. Such insecurity resulted in me fearing God's punishment. The speaker used an expression, once saved, always saved. Once someone is saved from the wrath of God, they are always saved from the wrath of God. There is not anything they can do to disqualify themselves from being saved. Such an understanding frees someone from striving to attain God's favor and approval. It frees us from wrestling with the question, have I done enough? Maybe one of these dispositions describes you this morning. Maybe you're deeply aware of all the sin that you've committed. And as a result of that, you fear God's punishment. You sweat. You're stressed. You may be depressed. Guilt from sin produces fear in you. Or maybe you've heard the expression, Jesus died for your sin, and you kind of believe it. But really, it's too good to be true. Sure, Jesus forgives, but you still need to earn that forgiveness. If you're not good enough, you could lose it. And so you frequently question and fear whether you've done enough for God to earn his forgiveness. The failures of your past performance or potential future performance, it produces insecurities in you. Because of the new birth, Because of the presence of God's spirit, a Christian no longer lives in fear. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation, it means absorbing wrath. God in love sent Jesus to absorb the punishment you and I deserve for our sin. There is no more wrath to absorb. It's complete. As Christ said as he hung on the cross, it is finished. A Christian understands his or her standing with God is not based on what he or she has done or what he or she will do. A Christian standing with God is based on what Christ did. A Christian was loved by Christ to the point that Christ bore the wrath of God, sacrificing his very life, dying for all his or her past sins and all his or her future sins. There is no more punishment to be administered. Christ bore it all. Such an understanding is a mark of the new birth, and it produces joy. So the first sign of the new birth is professing Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of the world. The second sign is freedom from fear of punishment. 
What's the third sign? So the third sign is something we have talked about multiple times as we've progressed through the letter of 1 John. The actions of a Christian, and those actions are loving others. Let's read a little bit more of chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. In verses 19 through 21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John emphasizes over and over again in this letter, the actions of a Christian are to love others in the church. What does this mean? What does it mean to love others? John makes clear it is not to hate. And if you were here in previous weeks, you know it is not to envy and have jealousy like Cain had for Abel. But what does it, what does it mean to love? Have, have any of you ever heard a husband say something like, I may not like my wife, but I sure do love her. At best, such an expression emphasizes the importance of commitment of moving beyond negative individuals, or excuse me, beyond negative feelings individuals may experience towards one another from time to time, but such an expression is inaccurate. Such an expression may produce cohabitation, living together, but it does not equate to love. The very nature of the word love, and the, the Greek word used here for love, agapeo, it's a verb. And it means to be fond of, to desire, to love dearly. If I love my wife, I may have negative feelings from time to time. But because I love her, I like her. I love her dearly. I am fond of her. I desire her. That is what it means to love others in the church. We don't simply cohabitate with one another in this space or cohabitate with one another in smaller communities. Absent of the new birth, we can do that. In the new birth, we love each other. We are fond of each other. We desire each other. As we've progressed through this letter, we have countered this theme of loving others time and time again. By nature of the text, Pastor Chris preached on this principle at least a couple of times. But by nature of the text, we must talk about it again here. So we must ask, why is John so concerned about how Christians relate to one another? Why does he repeat the importance of Christians loving one another over and over? Why does he essentially say you're a hypocrite if you say you love God, but you don't love others in the church? What is he getting at? Well, John knows his hearers have experienced firsthand the frailty of humans living in community. If you recall, John is writing to Christians who have recently experienced a church split. And if you have ever been in that type of circumstance, you know it's hard to love others in those moments. 
It is hard to look past differences of opinion. It is hard to look past different theological positions. It is hard to be in community when others have hurt you and they don't meet your expectations. Many of you are part of gospel communities at First City Church. This is my moment to advertise. If you're not a part of one, we'd love to get you connected. And here's what I'll, here's what I'll tell you. If you commit to one, if you've been a part of one, someone in that community, they will hurt you. It may be someone sins against you in small ways or big ways with their words or their actions. It may be you have expectations of a gospel community leader, and that gospel community leader does not meet those expectations, which is not necessarily because of sin. It hurts when that happens. It may be your gospel community multiplies, and in the process of multiplication, you feel your voice isn't heard. As you get deep in community, as you engage one another in conversation and doing life together, someone will hurt you. The mark of living in community is not that you won't be hurt. It's, it's just the opposite. A mark of living in community is that will happen. What will you do when that happens? Absent of the new birth, it is natural to divide and pull away from others who think differently than we do. Absent of the new birth, it is natural for us to divide and pull away from others when they don't meet our expectations. Absent of the new birth, it is natural to divide and pull away from others who sin against us. It is unnatural to experience and live out something else. And it is supernatural to love. For this is what God does. Verse 7, we see love is from God. Verse 8, God is love. Verse 10, God loved us. Verse 16, again, God is love. Verse 19, he first loved us. Why does John care so much about Christians loving one another? Because God is love. And if someone is born of God, he or she will demonstrate that love to others. As we said earlier, Christians do not simply cohabitate. They do not simply tolerate one another's sin. We love. We forgive. We sacrifice. Absent of the new birth, individuals do not understand this type of love. This type of love surrenders past hurts and pursues others when they do not meet expectations. Absent of the new birth, our culture teaches you to tolerate one another, but it does not teach you to forgive one another. It teaches you to love one another if they meet your expectations, but it does not teach you to love others when they don't meet your expectations. And our culture, absent of the new birth, teaches you to stand up for your rights, to hold on to them, to fight for justice, but it does not teach you to surrender those rights. This is the love one knows in the new birth. 
Jesus was not obligated to save sinners like you and I. In the cross of Christ, justice was not done. In fact, an injustice was done. The innocent one in love surrendered his rights for the guilty one. This is the love of Christ. Because because a Christian descends from God, because a, a Christian has been given God's spirit, he or she demonstrates the never-ending love God has for his people. A Christian will pursue others when they have been rejected and when they have rebelled. A Christian will be fond of and desire someone even when they have hurt them. This is a characteristic of the new birth and what it means to be Christian. Friends, these are the, these are the marks of the new birth. And if you identify with them, They are a source of joy and a reality that the Spirit lives in you and you have been given a new birth. 